This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Roisin Ingle, and you're very welcome to Back to Yours, a podcast where I talk to some big names about their houses, snoop in their drawers, and find out all about the homes they've lived in. I think we've all got a bit of a nosy streak. I know I definitely have. And this is a chance to hear how some very interesting people live. I'm going to ask burning questions like, are they more Lionel Messi than Marie Kondo? And can a home ever have too many lamps? Coming up in season one, I go back to yours with Dermot Bannon, Amy Huberman and Rose McGowan. But for this episode, I am going back to yours with Ireland's top satirist, Paul Howard, the best-selling creator of legendary rugby jock Ross O'Carroll Kelly. He has sold over one million Ross books. It's unbelievable. He's the writer of books such as I Read the News Today, Oh Boy, about the Guinness heir Tara Brown. He's also written about prison life in The Joy and about Roy Keane's dog. And I should also mention Paul's Ross plays and his musicals, Anglo the Musical and Copperface Jack's The Musical. He's basically the funniest person I know and we've been friends for more than 20 years. He lives in deepest Wicklow in a three-bedroomed home in Avoca with a brook running through the end of his garden. He lives there with his wife Mary and their basset hound Humphrey. Hello. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Rose. Are you all right with the dogs, are you? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Come on. Roshin's not. Roshin's not mad about Shut him. Shut up. But then he's not mad about Rose either. I, we've come to a Who's very this? good uh, arrangement. You'll hear Humphrey pottering about in the background through this episode. We talked to Paul about his childhood homes in Ballybrack, about his very funny family and his late mum, Laura, from whom he definitely inherited his love of extreme mischief. So here we go. Back to yours with the one and only Paul Howard. Okay, Paul, uh, take me into your office. All right, so yeah, this is where I work every day. I like to say, as they do on MTV Cribs, this is where the magic happens, but no magic happens in here. Just torture, (laughs) self-loathing, angst, all those things. The walls are completely from floor to ceiling covered in books, except for one wall where you have all your posters. Yeah, I've got a wall here. I've just got framed. I've got framed the frame cover of I read the news today. Oh boy, Angle of the Musical, Triggs, the book about Triggs, uh, Copperface Jack's the musical, and the first play I did, which was The Last Days of the Celtic Tiger. Tell us about your office setup. It actually looks very neat. I'm kind of you got oh, yeah pens in. I've just finished. I've just finished the next Ross book. So uh, the but I always have a kind of uh, a therapeutic tidy of the office afterwards. <laughs> but a week ago. This was just papers everywhere, notes, post-it notes, which is kind of a reflection of my mind when I'm working on a book as well. Like, I'm, I, you know, I have things all over the place. Uh, so the place was a mess. And um, when I finish a book, uh, you know, about an hour afterwards, I, I just get the, um, the, the beeswax spray out and I polish the desk and I get rid of all the clutter and um, make it 
habitable again. Tell me about some of the other things in this um, room. Well, the books. It's very comfortable. Like yeah. The lovely carpet really sort of, it's like, reminds me of a, a, it's a proper, proper office of somebody you might see in New York or something. Right. Of, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's nice. You've got steps up to your books. You've got a globe. It's kind of like all these. Yeah. I mean, the books are the main feature. And the, the one of the nice things about the books is they actually soundproof the room. So when I do my podcast every week, the, the, the room is fully soundproofed. Um. Well, I've got I've got this waiting list. I've got this sort of four piles of books here Jesus, jammed under of, the you're desk. You're waiting to read them books. No, they're waiting to go on the shelves. Oh, right. And I can't pass a bookshop without going in and buying three or four books. I'm just shocking. I just cannot do it. And I always think it's a it's a sign of a healthy mind to have more books than you can ever possibly read in your lifetime. But the problem now is uh, they don't all fit. So I've got this extra growth of books here. Uh, so I, what the plan now is I'm. I X factor them in and out, right? So these ones, <laughs> these ones are waiting to be X factored on the shelves. So I do an audit now in a few weeks' time when I have time, and all the books that aren't really, all the books that I know, if I'm sent to prison for a crime I didn't commit, I will never ever read that book. It doesn't matter how much time I have in my hands, I will the, never read it. Thing. That's the criteria. So, I mean, the way Mary Condo uh, says things should spark joy, it's whether yeah. you would bring it to. Yeah, Listen. absolutely. It's it's whether I would read it if I if I was if I did thirty years for something I didn't do. There's a picture of Ross pregnant here in the hole. Yeah, yeah. This picture, I love this picture. Um, this was supposed to be the cover, uh, the cover art for "Should Have Got Off at Sydney Parade," which was the second Ross O'Carroll Kelly book that Penguin published. And it's a it's a take on the uh, Demi Moore Vanity Fair cover. So it's it's Ross completely naked, except for a, a, there's a sort of vague hint of a Leinster jersey <laughs> around his uh, covering his manhood and this big swollen belly. And it was going to be the cover. And they saw it in Penguin and said, not a chance. It's too it's just too gross. I think gross was the word that came back. <laughs> And I argued with them. I argued back about it. And Alan was very, Alan Clark, the artist who draws Ross, was was also of the notion that it, uh, that there was nothing wrong with it. And of course, so they changed it and they were completely right because absolutely everybody who walks into the house says, oh my God, that is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. So I'm sure there may not have been another Ross book after Should Have Got Off at Sydney Parade if we'd let that be the cover. Okay, we're going to go up to your Star Wars room. Yes. And okay. that is not a joke. You actually have <laughs> Star Wars. Don't make it sound weird. Okay, no, okay well. <laughs> it's really weird. Okay, up the stairs. Cool. Right, uh, where's the Star Wars room? Well, the Star Wars room is here. Um, I mean, it's more than a Star Wars room. It's a bedroom which has some Star Wars things in it. I think that is that how you describe it, Roshan? No, I just describe it as a, a room full of Star Wars stuff that has a bed in it. Yeah, that's probably more accurate. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, so describe this t- for, for our listeners here. Well, I mean, it, it really is as weird as you, as you described it, Ro. <laughs> you know, like st- Star Wars has been a part of my life since I was a child. Like my dad... Uh, and mom took me to see the first movie when I was about, I think I'd made my communion that day. I was seven or eight years of age and just blown away by it. And uh, this piece here, this is this is the Death Star and it's made out of cardboard and I got it for Christmas in 1977. Um, so it's, you know, how old is that? It's, it's, four, it's 42 years old. Um and it's got a little bit of dust on it, but it's, it, you know, it's still, uh, you know, it, it's still the toy I got as a child. It's still my favourite toy. 
um, it has all these working parts it has a trash compactor here so the figures go through here and they fall down into here and then the wall closes in and crushes them there's a gun turret at the top you know it's and the whole thing moves around so a lot of these figures i have now they're I, all I, lined up i mean it's unbelievable there's shells and shells of i mean you if anyone stays in here they'd be afraid that they your might dad get stays in here in every night. christmas and uh, he stays here for about five nights every Christmas. <laughs> Poor guy. He just has all these alien eyes looking at him. But, but it's when I was a kid, my mum and dad never stopped buying me uh, Star Wars toys. Mm. Even when I became an adult, like when I was in my 20s and 30s, they would get, like, I would I'd wake up Christmas morning <laughs> and, like, jar, I'd get Jar Jar Binks for Christmas, you know? And uh, anyway, when I was a kid, it was always, like, it was always my dream to have a room where I could just put them all on display and I never did like I never did it and then it was one it was bank holiday uh, May bank holiday about 10 years ago Mary and I were here on Friday night and I was clearing out the eaves everything was in the eaves in the house in the it, through this little door behind the bed there stuffed in there in boxes and uh, I was clearing out Mary's just looking at all the Star Wars stuff. and she loved Star Wars as a kid because she'd older brothers who were into it so she was looking at all the stuff and she said let's like, let's just put it all, let's just turn this into a Star Wars room. So it was Mary's idea. I'm going to give it all away one day, like, you know, because it's kind of, you know, I, I do think it's a shame to have all this great stuff here. Quick look into your bathroom. It's the ensuite. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, is that a telly on your, at the end of your bath? It, yeah, that is a telly, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a television. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's set into, the, it's a, an aqua television, they call it. Oh, so right. it's, it's set into the tiles. Um, I spend a huge amount of time in the bath. Like, really? huge amount. Like, you know, th I'd have three baths a week. Um, Saturday afternoon. Uh, I mean, I, I would stay in the bath until, like, my fingers just go white you and like wrinkly. Like, what do you watch now in the bath? What's the kind of... Mostly football. <laughs> but... <laughs> Well, you know, I watch it. If there's no sport on, I'll watch, um, you know, I watch it like old 80s music channels. Like now that's what I call 80s on VH1 or something like that. You know, some really, really naff music or something. I have to say your be your bathroom is so like uncluttered. I'm just comparing it to Marion Keys where she's right. got so much stuff. Yeah, there's kind and... of room in here. Like, oh, yeah, you've got you know, But even in there, it's so neat. And... All your aftershaves and all that kind of your hair, yeah. hair wax. You have a lot of hair wax there. There's, there's not, but you know, just in case we get a bad winter, can't get out of the house. And Brexit, of course. <laughs> Brexit, you won't yeah, be able yeah, yeah. To get any. But it is very clean and tidy and non-cluttered. Very impressed. Thank you. Okay. Um, we just go down, maybe. Something else you want to show us up here? Oh, no, this room is nice. We got this done recently. <laughs> this room here. This used to be a bedroom. Uh, this is, but it's it's kind of a day room now. But this is a sofa bed. So we, you stay, you've stayed in that room, <laughs> yeah, have you? Yeah. So we had, you remember we had a bed in this yeah, room, right? Yeah. And the bed became known as the toe chopper, right? Because it had these metal legs that went out beyond the end of the bed. And you would just for every, every new stayed in there would say to me afterwards, I cut me foot on the bed, right? So Mary kept saying, let's get rid of the bed. And I said, I can't get rid of the bed. My mum gave it to me. So when I was leaving home, my mother said, uh, I've got to, I'm going to give you that bed when you leave. It was her leaving present. She was she was dying at the time, you know, so it was the last kind of three or four months of her life. But she, she kept saying to me, that bed is going with you when you go. Like, I'm making you a gift of that, you know. So I said, that's great. So anyway, I kept the bed for years. It was chopping people's toes off. You, ha you happened to you. Chopping my toes Happened off, to Lisa yeah. Lamb. Happened to John Boyne. Anybody who's ever stayed in this house has almost lost a toe on this bed. 
So I said to my dad a few, about six weeks ago, I said, uh, you know, we're thinking of getting rid of the bed, but you know, it's got, you know, emotional significance for me. And that's what he told me. I said, you know, mum gave me the bed. He said, she gave you that bed because she hated it. She kept banging her toe off. <laughs> so that was that. Yeah. She, she set me up. She saw a way of getting rid of the bed and she knew that, she knew that if she gave the bed to me, dad would buy another bed for her. Uh, you know? Laura, very cool. Right, we're going back downstairs. Okay. So, will we go and have a chat about all your homes? Yes. Paul, I just want to hear about your first home. That wasn't in Ireland, was it? No, we, we were born in England. Um, we lived in Stoke Newington in a flat in Stoke Newington when we lived in London. And then when I was about, I have no memory at all of that, but when, we, when I was about four years of age, we moved to Luton. And I remember Luton really well. We lived in 20 Dolphin Drive, Houghton Regis. And it was uh, a council house, a, quite a big council house, actually. And um, it, it was, I remember that the stairs were right in the middle of the house and you went up the stairs and you turned left to two bedrooms and right to two more bedrooms, a one bedroom and a bathroom. Um, and yeah, I remember, I remember that really well. And we were there until I was eight years of age and we moved because Margaret Thatcher got into power. And my dad, uh, my dad had been saying for, for months, you know, if, if Thatcher wins the election, um, we're moving to, Ireland. we're moving back to Ireland. My mum and dad are Irish and they moved over there in the sixties. And dad just had this sense that if, if Thatcher became prime minister, it, it wasn't going to be good for, for people like us, you know, a working class family, um, reliant on one wage and a wage that was coming in from, from, from industry, from factory work, you know, um, dad worked in, uh, Skeff and Vauxhall, two companies that, um, were involved in the motor industry. And, you know, I think within about a year of us moving back to Ireland, the factory had gone on a three day week. So he, he kind of, he, he knew, like, he trusted his instincts, but it was a huge thing to do, like, you know, to, you know, we'd know where, to, we, we'd know where to live in Ireland. Like, we'd, it wasn't like we were, we bought a house in Ireland, we were moving into this house. He had four children, him and mum had four children under the age of 10. Uh, he had a hundred pound, he had a hundred pound in his pocket, you know, um, and took everything, like, just packed absolutely everything into removal lorry, a big removal lorry. And it, it and, and then the next thing we got the ferry and we arrived in Ireland. So we had nowhere to go. So our home then was, we lived with my grandmother for about a year and a half. Um, Do you remember that time being eight, like what that was like to kind of go from, I suppose, a pretty secure home and you knew what, where you were, you were in England and you mm. probably had, you had your English accent and you were essentially yeah. a little English sounding boy. And then you arrive in your granny's. Yeah. And that sense of displacement, was that an Yeah, old? huge. I mean, really, really huge. Uh, I mean, I was like a little Grange Hill kid, like, oh, mate, watch ah. And we moved to Ireland and we moved, it was kind of, seven, it was 1979, summer of 1979. So those years, 79, 80, 81, were the bitterest uh, years of the Troubles, like really bitter. And there was a lot of anti-English feeling in Ireland. I don't ever remember anti-Irish feeling in England. I've no memory of it at all. But a lot of anti-English feeling when we moved here. Um, I remember... Dun Laoghaire was just full of graffiti, Brits out, um, smash H block, 
all that kind of thing. Near my school was free Nikki Kelly with every packet of cornflakes. Yeah, yeah, that, that was the, the, the piece of graffiti that did more for Nikki Kelly's uh, to establish his innocence than anything else. Um, but yeah, it was it was. I mean, it was tough. It was a tough time, you know, because we, you know, we're in school. Uh, with with kids who were, who were hearing anti English stuff at home, you know, there were really bitter years. It was the years of the hunger strikes, really. You know, eighty eighty one, uh, the really really nasty years of the troubles. But people kind of find it hard to kind of conceive of it now that there was leakage. You know, it it, it was down here as well. You know, that people it was very much prominent in people's consciousness what was happening in the north. I think it's much less so now. Uh, but certainly we got it in school, um, you know, like, what shall we do with the English bastards? What shall we do with the English? But that kind of thing, I was just fighting every single day, just every, just <laughs> my dad, my dad had this thing. My mum used to say, walk away from trouble. If anyone calls your name or anything, just walk away. And then my dad on the side will be saying, just punch someone in the face. Like you just have to hit one kid and then everyone else will fall into line, right? So I was getting mixed messages. But I remember I hit this kid called Reggie Byrne. He was dancing around me and he was saying anti-English stuff. That song, what shall we? Hanging by the balls in Stevens Green, hanging by the balls in Stevens Green. And I threw the, I hit him. And I, I hit him square in the face. And I'd never seen such shock on a kid. Like he he was jaws. Because I was kind of weedy, like, you know, it was quite, kind quite thin, malnourished looking kid. And uh, anyway, he was nice to me evermore after that, you know, but then we moved schools quite a lot. So when you move, when we moved school, you had a whole, a whole load of new people to fight, you know, the sense of displacement was, was, was huge. You know, we had been taken from a place where uh, it was, it was very, very familiar, you know, and school was very familiar. And when we came to Ireland, school was very, very different. You know, you suddenly had all these extra subjects you had to learn in English in, in England we did English and maths and then you know English could involve uh, reading Pam Ayer's poems for the whole afternoon or reading Spike Milligan for the whole afternoon uh, in the you know the yin yang yang and all that stuff and it was great and then we came to Ireland and we had to learn things like Irish and I remember being in school we started the school in Monkstown um, called Oliver Plunkett National School in Monkstown and the headmaster uh, we had us all, the four boys, the four Howard boys were in his office and he was trying to find out what the equivalent class was for, for our educational standard in England compared to what would it be here. And the headmaster was Des Cal's dad. And I remember sitting, uh, looking at the walls and I remember reading the Proclamation of Independence and thinking, like, what, what the hell is that about? Uh, I remember... It was in English, it was in Irish, and then it was translated into English. But it was war. I kind of was thinking, Jesus, is this country at war with the country I've just come from? Like, you know, and, uh, you know, and there was a, I remember there's a picture of Michael Collins in his, you know, full army uniform. And just get, just as that gathering sense in you that, that you've just walked into a war zone or something. Tell me about Ballybrack and the kind of home that your mum, Laura, and your dad, Dave, made as a working class family, working yeah. class home. But what, what was it like, those houses, those years? They were great. We, we moved to Ballybrack when I was, uh, you know, I was probably 
nine or 10, I think. And we'd been on the housing list for a year and a half. And then we finally got this house, a uh, big red brick house, like brilliant house, like, you know, best, you know, in terms of the quality of the, the building, it was the best house I ever lived in, you know. Fianna Fáil built public houses. You know, they, they built, you know, we lived in Cromlech Fields, 122 Cromlech Fields, Ballybrack. And we moved in just before Christmas in 1980. And it was, it was just great. It was an adventure. I mean, it was, it was just perfect for when you, when you're a kid, because we were suddenly thrown in with all these other kids who were our age. Nobody knew each other. Right. So allegiances hadn't actually established yet. Mm. Uh, So for the first, I remember for the first two years, like somebody's your best friend and then the next week you're best friends with his next door neighbor or something, you know, like the, your, your friendships just fluctuated and moved all the time, but they were still building it when we moved in. I mean, it was still for about a year and a half, it was still a building site, you know? So we used to do things like we'd, you know, go and try to get a, a chase off the watchman, the night watchman. Um, it's just mindless stuff. You just steal a broom from the building site just so the watchman would give you a chase and you drop the broom half a mile up the road like, and let him take it back. But what was great about Cromlech Fields was it was such a mix of people. It was, you know, people were coming from all sorts of backgrounds. Like, so, you know, like right in, directly in front of us, there were two uh, traveling families. The council at the time was trying to house tra- traveling families. They had this you know, probably well-intentioned, but ultimately ridiculous idea that if they put travellers into houses, yeah. that the the kids would see that they really liked being in a house and that they would settle in. One or two of them did, but but mostly they didn't. But they, you know, they were our friends. Like, you know, we hung out with them. We played football. They showed us how to play hurling and stuff like that. And then there was Vietnamese families there as well. Like, there were refugees from the Viet, from the Vietnam War, boat people, and they housed some some of them families there. There were families from, from the north who were who were on the run. Like they were, you know, the men were still involved. You know, they were they were refugees from the troubles, but the men were still. They would go off yeah. like for weekends when you know ostensibly fishing. But we kind of, the joke was they they never they never seemed to come back with any fish. You know? <laughs> And you know, and and then there was there was a few posh families in the estate as well, really posh families who were obviously you know had money and fell on hard times and had to be housed by the council. Um, and then you know, quite a few people who are like us were kids who were born in England of Irish parents who moved back. So suddenly, uh, you'd, I didn't feel like an outsider because we were all outsiders. We were all finding our way in that brilliant housing estate you know it was it was just such a great place and mum and dad made made a great home for us there like I remember like my mum every single house she lived in she had to have a red and white kitchen and you remember my mum's red and white kitchens and we lived in a lot of houses and every single house we moved into the first thing it was real kind of 70s or early 80s type kitchens everywhere she went she had to have a red and white one so it was either wallpaper or tiles um, and, and then all like cups and saucers would be color coordinated with the, with the lino or the wallpaper or the tiles. Uh, so I remember that. And she liked her sort of knickknack things as well. Yeah. She liked kitsch, you know, she really liked kitsch, tat. She used to call it tat. And if I was going anywhere, 
when I was when I was a sports reporter, wherever I was going, she would say, "I'll oh, bring us back a load of tat, will you, Paul?" I'm like, bring her back this rubbish, <laughs> like you know, like really, really. I just, I'd have to buy the tackiest things I could possibly see, and she just. She just loved them, like, you I know. Love, I just remember going to your house at Christmas time. That was the thing. And you'd walk in and it was like, I mean, I've never seen anything like it. The amount of stuff. Yeah. There'd be a reindeer there. There'd be, you know, you're sitting Santa on a pole the sleigh. There'd be, yeah, you'd be you see, that happened very, very late in my mum's life. My mum never liked Christmas when we were kids. She liked it, you know, because we were, we were happy. But, you know, mum, my mother grew up uh, in, you know, a very poor house you know there, there was no money and it was a big family and my grandfather was dying of tb for years and years and years he was bedridden for years so my grandmother was raising seven kids of her own and then two children she took in who are cousins from wexford their children because their parents had died of tb so she had nine kids and she was working full time um to to keep the roof over their heads but my mom always remembered that the, the the disappointment of Christmas and the sadness of Christmas and seeing other kids getting things. And so I always, mum always seemed very distant on Christmas day. And I think part of it was, was the, how busy she was getting the dinner ready. And part of it was just the sadness. But then later on in life, um, probably the last 10 years of our life, when we were all a little bit older, my mum and dad could stop worrying about money because we were raised and we were out earning ourselves. And she just embraced it, but it was almost like she was determined to make up for every Christmas she'd missed. So she went to town and like she'd just come back with bags and bags of stuff. She couldn't pass a shop that had Christmas decorations without buying a bag full of stuff. And the house would just be like the late, late toy show. When you called into the house, it was like walking into the late, late toy show. Every single surface had, you know, a Santa scene on it. Um... Funny as well, she didn't mind mixing the the nativity stuff with the Santa stuff, you know, so you could kind of see a snowman behind the manger, you know. <laughs> but you, was, at Christmas, you have a whole scene, a New York scene yeah, yeah. of Christmas that you have in your sitting room. Is there a bit of you in that, like with the Star Wars room and yeah, yeah, collecting huge, and, yeah, yeah, and, all, and even with books as well, you like to yeah. have this stuff? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do, Mary and I do the house, so Mary's just fanatical about Christmas as well and you know, we do the same thing every year, but I do it because of my mum, because I because I knew the joy it gave her and it gave me joy as well to see it. So we do the same thing. We we bought these um th- these so Christmas, it's like a Christmas village, uh, a collectible Christmas village. And we used to get them every we go to America a couple of times a year. And um we bought we started buying them over there. So there's like a Chrysler building and there's a flat iron building and an Empire State. And loads of little people, you know, like there's a little Chinese family walking home with Chinese takeaway food and there's a skating rink and then there's cable cars, real moving cable cars with a motor inside and everything. It takes about 12 hours to put that up. And we do it, we usually do it in November. Like we start Christmas incredibly early around the middle of November. The quality street gets put on that table over there. And the lid comes off and that's the cue for me to go up to the attic and start bringing all the stuff down. But it's the whole, like the entire attic is full of this stuff, you know. There's nowhere to move in the attic. So back to Ballybrack and growing up in the house. I mean, was your mum a good cook? Do you remember great meals or what was the... No, no, no. My mum wasn't a good cook at all. No. 
I feel really disloyal saying that, but she was a terrible... No, she used to laugh about it, you know. She used to laugh about how bad, how bad she was. I mean, you know, you taste her chicken curry. I mean, her chicken curry was great. She could do a really good chicken curry. But she, mostly, she would say herself, I couldn't be bothered, you know. And she was she was kind of making food... I mean, the way, I suppose nobody really was fetishizing cooking in in working-class Ballybrack, in the in the ni- early 1980s you know nobody was going home and saying oh look i'm making my own pasta or uh, <laughs> i'm making my own sushi or anything like that like we had meat potatoes and one or two veg on the plate right so uh, that could mean like a, a, like a tin of plum tomatoes could appear on the plate not in a spaghetti just as a veg on the side of the plate like with your piece of liver and some mashed potatoes and this disgusting looking plum tomato and that was it, it wasn't a cooking house like you know you couldn't you put your hand in the heart and say but it was, we were being served up these well, amazing meals okay it wasn't a cooking house but it was a house full of laughter wasn't it i mean it was, oh, it was your just four boys your dad oh. your mum, the, the crack like the, yeah and the, it wasn't just all us as well everybody used to come to our house you know so we'd all our friends like chrissy byrne and jason dawn and they were, everybody would just go to howard's house because it was, it was a bit mad, like, you know, there was, I remember, uh, everything was a laugh. Like if you could, if you could make your mom and dad laugh or make your brothers laugh, that's all that, that was the most important thing of the day. Right. But I remember this year we were, me and Chrissy Byrne and Jason Dunn, who were great friends of mine growing up, we had been around collecting for the Christmas bazaar. Right. So you, we had to have my mum's shopping trolley. And they had shopping trolleys as well. Just knock on doors. We're collecting for the St. Lawrence College Christmas Bazaar. And people were giving it, would give something out of the press, like a tin of peas or a tin of mixed fruit or something. So we went home. We opened this We opened this food out. And we we're putting it on the table. And I had the idea that we would swap all the labels around, right? So, you know, a tin of mixed fruit, when the person who bought it opened it, it would be peas. Or <laughs> the beans, <laughs> the beans would turn out to be a tin of strawberries or something, right? So we're sitting at the table doing this, like re- really putting our mind into it as well. And my mum came out and she said, what are you doing? I said, we're uh, just swapping all the labels around. So whoever buys carrots ends up with cherries, black cherries, you know. So mum says, uh, you can't do that. You need proper glue. And she went, <laughs> and she got, me, she got me the glue. So that was kind of what our house was like. If it was, if it was kind of mischief, and it was well-intentioned and there was a laugh at the end. My mum could see that and go, because she'd have done that with her sisters, because she grew up in a, in a house full of girls and they were just like, not probably bold, like, you know, they would do stuff like that all the time. And my mum appreciated a good joke and she saw that and she went, that's good comedy. That is good comedy. I'll go get you the Pritt stick. You need a Pritt stick for this. But there was always funny things happening. I mean, like I remember one time the, the, the priest was calling from door, Father Hastings was calling from door to door. Uh, and he'd knock on the door and say, I'm here to bless your, your sacred heart of Jesus picture, right? Now, nobody in Ballybrack had a sacred heart. He just knocked on, like he just presumed everybody would have a sacred heart of Jesus picture. So anyway, he gets to the house at the end of our block. Actually, it was the, the end one on the other block. And they happened to have one, right? But they knew nobody else was going to have one. So what they did, after he blessed the picture, they sent the daughter into the garden to call the people next door. And they passed the, whole, the sacred heart picture over there. And that was brought into that house. And it was passed over about seven or eight 
garden walls. Right? It's so, like something from Dairy Girls or something, isn't it? It's totally like that. And it gets to our house and we're the last and we're the seventh family. So he's blessed this Sacred Heart picture, seven, and then it finally went back to the family who owned it, you know. It was kind of, it was just great. Everyone was feeling their way and it was just such a great sense of community, you know. The other really strong memory I have of those Ballybrack years is people people who would pipe into the television, right? But they didn't want to pay for the pipe. So they would get up a ladder and they'd stick the thing in themselves and they'd bring the whole estate down. If you didn't know what you were doing, which nobody really did, you bring the whole estate down. Now, this always happened at really important times. If there was a big football match coming up or like say if a big movie was going to be on the telly, The Deer Hunter or something like that, like get people to pipe in. But I remember it was the 1982 World Cup final and... We, it was about an hour before kickoff and somebody, the, the whole pipe went and everybody's out at the doors, like looking around, who's piping in. So dad went off to find who it was. He was in a rage and he gets to this house and he sees this guy up the ladder fiddling with his box and he's at the bottom of the ladder and he shouts, yeah, F and I'm blinding this guy, you know, you've taken the whole thing. It's Germany against Italy. I remember him shouting, Paolo Rossi. He's shouting at this guy, Paolo Rossi, shouting up the ladder. So then... <laughs> So he comes home and about 10 minutes later, there's a ring on the door and uh, two men in coats standing there. And it was the special, the guard, a special branch. And he said, Mr. Howard, um, I just want you to know, you know, the man you were shouting at is, a, is a, um, an active member of the provisional IRA. <laughs> <laughs> Which he was actually, you know, it turned out he was. Many years later, we found out like he was, <laughs> we found out what exactly what he was up to. What about the first house um, you lived in as an adult or the first home you made yourself? Yeah, I lived in a few, I rented a few houses for years. I never really had any desire to own a house ever, really. And probably because I always thought it was outside, um you know, it's outside my ability to pay for it. Like it terrified the idea, the idea of taking on a mortgage, um, especially being a freelance journalist as I was for all those years, such a precarious industry. The idea of taking on a 30 year mortgage just seemed like a, a really mad thing to do. So I never did. And I, and I rented houses, stayed at home for a long, long time. Tell me, like, what age were you when you left? Home? Oh, I you mean, quite old, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was about, I think I was about 20, 25, 26. Which then was really yeah. long. See, I didn't it? go to college. I mean, yeah. if I'd gone to college, I probably would have yeah, moved out yeah. of home. But it was really comfortable, you know, and they used to they only used to take 50 quid a week off me <laughs> for everything. So so it kind of stayed. But then I moved out and I lived in a in a house on Strabrook Road, a little townhouse in Blackrock. I was living with a girl at the time. And I remember the day I moved in. Just thinking, like at 26 years of age, right? Just thinking, oh, Jesus, I don't want to, I want to move back home, right? <laughs> just, where's the fear? And I swear to you, right? I'm not like, I don't cry easily, right? I'm not a crier, right? But I was crying, I was doing, the, I remember I was doing the dishes, getting really teary. It was costing more than 50 quid a week for starters. And, right, this is it now, grown up, you're an adult. At 26. At 26, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got burgled in that house in Black Rock, didn't want to live there anymore. You know, they wrecked the place. Like, they really, really trashed the place. I remember the guard who came to take fingerprints went, oh, this place is done again, huh? And I went, what? And he said, oh, I've been in this house about seven times. 
So I kind of, I, you know, I went to the landlord and I said, you never told me when I moved in that it was, you know, it would have been burgled that many times. So very kindly let me off with the lease. And we moved to Greystones and I lived in Greystones. I lived there for four years, I think it was altogether. You talked a while back about uh, not wanting a mortgage and always feeling mm. it was too much of a financial commitment and the fear, the fear yeah. of pain, um, which is kind of, is that back from growing up uh, in your dad's attitude to money, kind of that kind of yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is, it's completely that. It's grown up at a time when, you know, we, the, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, you know. I mean, it wasn't an issue for us because nobody I knew had any money. We didn't know kids who were going on skiing holidays or anything, or I didn't know kids going to Blackrock College. So you just know what you know. We didn't know we were poor. I mean, you know, by com- comparatively, we were poor, uh, you know, compared to other people in Dublin. But back then, the idea of borrowing money was was something that was supposed to strike terror into you you know especially to buy it to to borrow money to buy anything other than a house like the idea that you might borrow money to go on holidays or borrow money to buy a jet ski or something like culturally this just became almost the norm during the celtic tiger that there was no shame attached to debt or um there was no there was no sense that this was going to change your life in some way i remember buying my first computer it was a wang um remember Wang in Limerick and it, it was what we used to call the never never so it was on the electricity bill they used to advance yeah. your credit on the electricity bill and I think I was paying it back for about five years or seven years or something seven years I think it was like I know it was in the bin long you know long after I was still paying for the thing but dad had to uh, like offer his house as guarantee for this five grand for this computer like because it was a massive deal and that was only that was kind of 1993 and then Within sort of four years, I was getting letters from the bank saying, you've been approved for a 20 grand loan that you hadn't even asked for. I hadn't even asked for this money. They were saying, we've pre-approved you for it. So the attitude towards credit did change. Mine didn't. I think I still always had that thing in me saying, what are you doing? Like, what, why, would you, why would you do that? So I was living in this house in Greystones and the landlady, she was going to sell it. And I got on really well with her. So she said, look, I'd, I'd really love if you if you bought it. Like, so she said, I'll get it valued and, you know, I'll give you first option before I even kind of put it on the open market. So she got it valued. And I think it was like 780,000, right? And it was a two and a half bedroom house. Like the, the third bedroom was kind of a cot room, really. You know, it wasn't big. It was semi-detached. You know, that bit of me just went, what? The ballybracker in me just went, what? I remember when we were kids, I remember Bono bought the house up on the hill. We could see Bono's house when we were kids, like, yeah, yeah, up on Kleine Hill. And he paid a million quid for it, right? And I remember, like, that that became the standard for us, right? That I'd love to live in a million pound house, right? But a million pound house, that was not a million pound house I was living in. That was not a 750,000 pound house I was living in. It was a semi-detached house in a housing estate in Greystones with two and a half bedrooms in it. And to me, that that should have been able to buy Bono's house. Yeah, like that when money. you looked up Bono's house, it looked like a million quid house. Is that yeah, 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 yeah. And this one definitely wasn't. So I said no, and um, and then I, then I moved home for a while, and my mum was sick at the time, so it was kind of it was nice to move home because you know she she was dying at the time, and it was nice to be there. It was nice to be in the house and to to spend those last few months with her. But I had moved home really to save, like to try and get a deposit together, like for a, for a house, which I'd never even thought about before. I mean, I never had money before. Unt- until I was about 35, I've never, I never had more than 600 euro. 
ever. Like never had a never had a nest egg or a <laughs> savings go out, or anything. You'd have Howie's hundred, I remember. Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. Have a hundred euro always. Yeah, yeah. That was me being Jay Gatsby. Like a hundred euro. <laughs> me spending a hundred hundred <laughs> euro say, was put your money away. Howie's <laughs> <laughs> hundred. <laughs> but I never, I was, I never was able to save or you know, like I said, I, I was in a job in the Tribune. It's partly my fault. I never asked for a pay rise in all the years in the Tribune. I think I got one pay rise in like 14 years or something because I didn't care. I didn't. I, I was doing what I wanted to do from the time I was 11 years of age, which was write about sport for the Sunday Tribune. That's all I wanted to do. You got a mortgage. So this is your house that you... Yeah, this is the, the, the only house I've ever owned. The first house I bought, the only house I've ever lived in. Yeah. And why Wicklow? The only house I bought that I've ever lived in. Well, after the incident with the paying the Bono price for the... The Greystones house, I, I I decided I would have to move further south. I would love to have lived in Ballybrack. That's where I really want to live. I'd love to have bought the house I grew up in. I'd love to live in. I still pass by Cromlech Fields and say, one day, like one day, that's where I'm going to live again. You don't look up at Bono's house? Then. No. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, I look at that house in Cromlech Fields and it's got so many happy memories for me. And I, that's where I want to live one day. But I couldn't afford it. So I was single at the time. So I was looking for a mortgage by myself um, I knew I'd have to go further south and I saw at this house in Avoca it was reasonably priced I worked from home so I didn't need to be within commutable distance of Dublin I, I came it was the second house I saw and I just walked in and I just loved it straight away I just said oh, this is this is where I want to live so in this house what's your favorite room where do you go when you just really want to chill out apart from the bath with your tv yeah, the bath is a big thing. You see, I, I, when I finish a book, I finished a book last week and the first thing I do, I have a bath running and the bath is just like, when I, the second I type the last word, I get into the bath with a can of beer and I've done that every single book I've ever written. you used to written. do a brandy thing? No, no. I mean, I would drink a brandy, I mean, but, I, in, but the in, the bath, oh, in the bath it's a beer in the bath. Oh, in the bath it's a beer. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, and then... And then I listen to Real Real Gone by Van Morrison and clear my desk, like on repeat, like 30 times, like yeah, while, while yeah. I clean my office. So it's kind of, so that's, you know, if I'm working, if I'm trying to get away from work, it's a bath. Like I, I love that room. There's telly on the wall. It's a big jacuzzi bath and it's kind of my Scarface thing. But for rac- relaxation, it's the living room. You know, it's, I love it. It's got really, it's got these really, really rich red colored walls and a really, really comfy sofa. Because I lived in rental houses for years, the sofas were always kind of wicker that would break your arse after about an hour, like you had to get up and walk around. But that sofa just, you sit on it and it, it just, it's like rocking you off to sleep or something. And uh, so that's, that's the comfort room. Escape the Ordinary with Green and Blacks, sponsor of Back to Yours. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Discover your favourite flavour from the range, which includes 70% cocoa, roasted almond, salted caramel, sea salt and mint. Laura died how many years ago? 15, 15 years ago. So how do you think the way she made her home, the things she did, is there anything of that in the way you live or your domestic life that you think of her sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think the fact that when people come to visit, we're always in the kitchen. Like my mother was the center of the center of our house was the kitchen. Um, and that's very much the case here. When everybody, everybody comes at Christmas, Mary's mom and dad come to stay. Uh, my dad comes to stay, my brothers. So we do usually have about 12 people around this table at Christmas. Um, but people arrive at, you know, nine in the morning and we, we start peeling veg and we're all still in the kitchen at three in the afternoon, you know, drinking, like drinking and having cocktails and drinking wine and everything. 
but but working, creating the dinner together and just laughing and telling stories. And there's the laughter thing that I, I just couldn't bear to live in a house where there wasn't laughter. It's like a house without music, like it's just a house without joy. And then like that thing you mentioned earlier, that obsessiveness about certain things, like, you know, like for me, it's Star Wars. For my mom, it was, I remember my mother, uh, she would take on these projects and one of them in the last year of her life, she was going to turn her spare room into a bear room, right? So she started obsessively buying teddy bears and she created this room which was just full of bears. But then my dad bought her this wood cutting machine. She was really, really creative, my mother. She was brilliant at art and crafts. She could make anything, absolutely anything. She made these teddy bears and there was one of me, I had little glasses and a, a book with the joy, which is the first book, second book I wrote. The joy was written on the front and she made one of my brother, Mark, who's a chef. And she made one of my two younger brothers as well. And then these bears were all over the, like she st- attached them to the wall and she was great like that, you know, with that. and so take it on projects. I do things like that as well. I'm asking everyone about what home means to them. And it's interesting to hear people's responses and also what's the precious things in their home and what they would say. Oh, like I'd lo- you know, I'd love to give you an answer. I'd love to say it's a sanctuary or, you know, it doesn't mean anything to me, honestly. It re- it doesn't. It just doesn't mean a thing. It's a house. And pro- it's probably because we lived in so many houses growing up. My my mum and dad never got emotionally attached to a house. They always, they, they just said, yeah, we loved living there and we moved on. And we never looked over our shoulders and said, oh God, we should never have got rid of that house. I should never have moved. Cromlick Fields was the closest, the, the most emotionally attached in, in my mind now because it's it I associate with my happy childhood. But houses were just houses for us. Like for me, a home, the home is is me and Mary and Humphrey. And that's it. Doesn't matter where we are. Um, you know, I had a thing about seven years ago where I got into um legal trouble with Anglo the musical. And uh, you know, it looked for for a while, you know, for a few weeks, I thought there was a chance I might lose the house or I might have to sell the house to to pay legal bills. And the toughest thing of all was telling Mary that like two years, we were only married two years and having to tell her that I got us into this bother. And Mary uh, just said, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Like it's just it's a house. It doesn't matter. And and I was glad she said that because I thought the same thing. It didn't, it didn't bother me. As long as I was okay, Mary was okay, and Humphrey was okay. It, it really did, it just did not bother me at all. It's just a house, you know, and if I lost it, I lost it. Finally, what would Russell Carroll Kelly think of your house? And Oh, he would hate it. Like, you know, he would absolutely hate it. I mean, it's, um, look how far it is from Dublin, you know. It's a good hour away from Dublin. Like, no, no, like, it's not just Wicklow. It's it's South Wicklow. Like, it's deep, deep, darkest Wicklow. No, he wouldn't come anywhere near here, you know. I don't think he would go. See, when you came here today, when you hit the Lachlanstown roundabout, that's where he would have turned back. <laughs> Paul, thank you very much. Thanks, Rosie. Thanks very much to Paul for letting us go back to his house and for the lunch and the cakes which he spent all night making and thanks to lovely Humphrey too. I'm Roisin Ingle and remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about it. Next time, my guest on Back to Yours is Rose McGowan. 
sometimes when Tina wasn't there, we would get locked out and I would sleep in cemeteries, which I've always found very peaceful and calming. The only thing I own outright in my life right now is, uh, is a Porsche and eight plots in a cemetery in Seattle, Washington. 